You are listening to the Today I Found Out podcast, where each weekday we provide an interesting story that is going to feed your brain. You can read more great articles like this by going to todayifoundout.com. Hello and welcome to episode number 404 of the Daily Knowledge Podcast from todayifoundout.com. And before I talk about what the episode is today, I have to say with a bit of a heavy heart that this is the last episode that there will be of the Daily Knowledge Podcast. And I'll explain exactly why that is in a second. But first, I just wanted to thank everyone who's been listening to this podcast over the last year and a bit. We've been blown away by the response that we've had from listeners. I mean, we're in the multiple millions of downloads now and just the the praise that we've had for the podcast, the regular people downloading the show every day and the nice emails. It's just been, well, it's it's been quite a ride and it's been a lot of fun. And the reason that we are actually having to shut down the podcast is partly because of that. The support for the podcast has been so great and we've had so many downloads that the hosting um, the costs have become very expensive. And unfortunately, the the model of advertising on the show, getting sponsors onto the show to to support that and cover that cost is not really viable. Sponsors tend to prefer longer shows and this show being about you know 10 minutes each isn't so appealing to them. And unfortunately, we're not really breaking even on the costs of hosting the show. So as I say, um, it, it's sad that after 404 episodes, we have to close this down, but it's just... Um, the costs uh, have become too high for us to bear, unfortunately. I do want to thank, however, all our advertisers as well who have been supporting the show. It's been really great of you to come on board and help us meet some of those costs and keep putting the show out over the last year. Before we wrap up, we would like to say that we're not done, though. Um, If you do want to continue following Daily Knowledge and Today I Found Out, you can do that several places online. Uh, There's todayifoundout.com, which has loads of articles and great stuff on there, as well as the Daily Knowledge newsletter, which is essentially this in text form. So if you do still want your hit of Daily Knowledge, we uh, we are still doing that in the newsletter form. So just head on over to todayifoundout.com and sign up for that. Also, we're launching a YouTube channel because YouTube, you don't have to pay for hosting the videos. So we're moving over to that format. We're animating a bunch of videos and really moving into something that uh, I hope uh, that you as podcast listeners would also be interested in. And to find that, you can also go to todayifoundout.com, follow the links, or just go direct to YouTube. Uh, you can just go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash today I found out. And this episode's going live on the 14th of May 2015. So if you're listening in the future, that should all be up and running. It's up and running now. We've got some videos up there already, and we'll just be starting to put out a bunch more as we move forward with the channel and kind of wind up the podcast. So I hope it's not too disappointing that the show's closing down like this quite suddenly, and we hope that you'll go over to the the Daily Knowledge newsletter and also our YouTube channel. Uh, again, that's youtube.com forward slash user forward slash today I found out. Also, I, Simon, the guy who does the uh, does this side of the podcast, does the audio production, I have another podcast, uh, Rocking Self-Publishing, which talks to authors. It's an interview show. It's quite different from this. It runs for about an hour, goes out every Thursday. You can find more about that at rockingselfpublishing.com or just search in iTunes. Uh, it's a show I'm particularly proud of and... I'd love it if you uh, came over to that. Obviously, I know it's not exactly a, a neat tie-up of audience. There's not going to be a huge number of authors listening to this show. But if you 
you are, I'd love you to come and join me on my longer form interview podcast on Thursdays. So thanks again for listening to the Daily Knowledge podcast over the last few years. In the episode today, we're talking about a guy called Hobbs who basically went over to England and started breaking into all of the locks there and caused quite a stir. So a good episode. There's also a word from one of those wonderful sponsors I mentioned, Harry's, and a bunch of bonus facts about Hobbs and his locks. So let's just get on with today's show. In April 1851, Alfred C. Hobbs boarded the steamship Washington bound for Southampton, England. His official duty was to sell the New York City-based company Day & Newell's newest product, the Paratopic Lock at a trade show, London's Great Exhibition. But Hobbs had something a little more nefarious up his sleeve, or rather in the small trunk that accompanied him on the ship. In it sat a large assortment of picks, wrenches, rakes, and other slender tools. You see, Hobbs wasn't just trying to sell his locks. He was trying to prove that his competitors' locks were, quite simply, not good enough. He had the tools, skills, and charisma to do just that. Alfred Hobbs was going to launch the Great Lock Controversy of 1851. Of all the locks at the Great Exhibition in July of 1851, the Detector was thought to be the top of its class. Patented in 1818 by Jeremiah Chubb, it had become the most widely used and prestigious lock throughout England. In fact, in 1823, Chubb was given the distinguished honor of being the sole supplier of locks for England's post offices and Her Majesty's prison service. By 1851, Chubb and Son and their detector lock were so highly respected that they were given the assignment of creating a special security display cage that housed the great Koenor diamond, a 186-carat diamond that currently sits in the crown of Queen Elizabeth, which is locked in the Tower of London. Numerous picklocks in London had made attempts at getting past the detector with no success. In one instance, a picklock who had been imprisoned was offered his freedom if he could figure out a way to pick the detector lock. He couldn't do it. What made the detector so difficult was that the lock had a built-in anti-lock picking mechanism, which, if triggered, would render the lock inoperable, even if you had the key. This trap worked such that if you lifted one of the pins beyond what the key would have done, it triggered the lockdown mechanism. By this, you could tell if someone had tried to pick the lock, if your key suddenly stopped working. To get the lock working again, a special regulating key was needed, which would reset the lock such that it could be opened once again with the normal key. The detector was thought to be in a lock class all to itself. That is, until Hobbs got to it. According to a report filed by Benji Johnson, an agent of the state of New York appointed to attend the Great Exhibition, Hobbs wasted very little time in proving that Chubb's locks were not impenetrable. As the report read, Soon after the exhibition opened, Mr. A.C. Hobbs of New York, who had charge of Day and Newell's locks, obtained one of Chubb's locks and opened it in the space of 10 or 15 minutes, in the presence of several gentlemen. As one would imagine, this did not sit well with many an Englishman who were using the detector to lock away their homes and valuables. Most of all, it did not sit well with Chubb and Son. They challenged Hobbs to try something a tad more difficult, a Chubb lock attached to an iron door of a vault in Westminster that was a depository of valuable papers. Hobbs sent out an invitation for them to come and watch him pick. Gentlemen, an attempt will be made to open a lock of your manufacture on the door of a strong room. You are respectfully invited to be present and witness the operation. At approximately 11.35 a.m., in front of the iron door in Westminster, Hobbs met his skeptical onlookers. He took out from his waistcoat two or three small and simple-looking tools and went to work. Within 25 minutes, he had the lock open with a sharp click. He had once again successfully picked a supposedly impenetrable chub lock. 
Witnesses, hardly believing their eyes, asked him to do it again. So he relocked the lock and picked it again, this time in seven minutes and without the slightest injury to the lock or door. England's illusion of the security of their possessions had been shattered. After making his presence quite known at London's Great Exhibition, Hobbes continued his lock-picking tour in England. For instance, later that summer, he picked the monster Brahma Precision Lock, which had never been picked since it was manufactured in 1790. This scared the Bank of England enough that they had all their locks swapped out for Day and Newell's. Dubbed by the newspaper The Great Lock Controversy, the London Times wrote, We believed before the exhibition opened that we had the best locks in the world, but no longer after Hobbes's demonstrations. Skeptics doubted Hobbes's ability, asking if the locks were picked properly, if he had cheated, or even if they hadn't seen it themselves, that it was all an urban myth. Even major publications, while admitting that Hobbes did do what was asked, doubted his skills. Said Bankers Magazine, The result of the experiment has simply shown that, under a combination of the most favorable circumstances, and such as practically could never exist, Mr. Hobbes has opened the lock. So how did Hobbes acquire his prodigious lock-picking skills? Hobbes's father died when Hobbes was just three years old, so as soon as he could work, he did so to help support his family. Thus, at the age of ten, he began his professional career as a farmhand. He eventually moved to woodcarving, carriage building, tinsmithing, and harness making. Around 1835, he earned an apprenticeship with the Sandwich Glass Company, now a museum 60 miles outside of Boston, where he learned to make doorknobs and the locks that went with them. He soon also became very talented at picking those locks. He took those skills to Day and Newell and quickly became a very good salesman. After all, what's a better way to sell locks than to easily pick your competitors' locks in front of your potential customers? Before showcasing this talent to Britain in 1851, Hobbes picked his way across America. He hopped from town to town, calling on banks to challenge him to open their safes, all in the name of selling Day and Newell locks, of course, and sometimes for prize money. For instance, according to a story recounted in a history of the old town of Stratford and the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, written in 1888, while on a job in Lancaster, PA, replacing locks at a bank in 1848, a cashier showed him a newspaper ad placed by a Mr. Woodbridge of Perth Amboy, offering $500, about $11,000 today, to the person who could open the lock in the safe in New York's Merchant Exchange Reading Room, now the National City Bank building at 55 Wall Street, within 30 days. Hobbes proclaimed to the clerk, That is my money, and left for New York right after finishing the job in Lancaster. Hobbes met his challenger in New York, and after parameters were set, three arbitrators were to oversee, he must use instruments of his own, and if he was not able to open the lock, Hobbes would have to sign a certificate declaring the lock perfectly safe and recommend it to the public. Woodbridge's lock was extremely cleverly designed. Besides having 479,000,600 possible arrangements of the pins, it was rigged such that if the bolt was pulled before the tumblers were perfectly set, anything in the lock would be seized and you would be unable to remove it, thus making the lock impossible to pick at this point with tools stuck inside it. So the picklock couldn't try to open the lock until he knew the tumblers were set just so. After everyone went home for the day, Hobbes was given access to the safe and began work on the lock at 9 p.m. In just two and a half hours, he had figured out the correct setting for the pins and laced a thin metal wire into the lock to pull the bolt. Of course, he needed the arbitrators to witness what he'd done to get credit, so he waited until the following morning, when they could be called upon. At 10 a.m. the next morning, Mr. Woodbridge, who Hobbes had requested attend along with the arbitrators, found Hobbes standing in front of the safe with a crowd surrounding him. Again, from a history of the town of Stratford and the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, Mr. Woodbridge came, and there being quite a crowd around him, he called from a distance, Hello, Mr. Hobbes, what is the trouble? There is something the matter with the lock, said Mr. Hobbes. What is it? said Mr. Woodbridge. 
Mr. Hobbs, then carefully moving the wire, pulled the door of the safe open and said, Your lock won't keep the door shut. So shaving can be a bit of a pain. I mean, you've got, it can be uncomfortable, you can get razor burn, nicks, all sorts of stuff. And then to top it all off, you go to the store and you pay $32 for eight blades and they come in some container that it's hard to get them out of. And yeah, basically the whole experience is not very good. So if you aren't using Harry's, it's just one of those situations where it doesn't make sense not to. It is much cheaper. It is delivered to your door. It is just a higher quality shaving experience. I've been using Harry's for a while. They send you this great shave cream. They send you these beautiful razors. The blades are just a really high quality and it makes shaving into a nice experience. And they deliver to your door so you don't actually have to even go to the store to shell out more money for expensive blades. And it all just comes in this beautiful little box. And basically, whenever you need the blades, they ship out more to you. You don't have to hassle with anything. It is just... As I said, there's no reason not to. And better yet, for your first purchase, you can get $5 off if you go to harrys.com and enter my coupon code, which is DAILY. So just go to harrys.com and enter the promo code DAILY to get $5 off your first order. Again, harrys.com, promo code DAILY, $5 off. Thanks again to Harry's for sponsoring the podcast. And now for today's bonus facts. Carrying around an extensive set of lockpicks during his trip to England wasn't exactly a recipe for smooth relations with the Bobbies, who didn't know who he was. As such, along with his box of lockpicking tools, Hobbs also carried with him a letter from the Chief of Police of New York City, George Matzell, vouching for Hobbs's character. Bonus fact 2. 1851 was a rather vulnerable time for English citizens. It was the first time that England's urban population outnumbered the rural population, meaning more people gathered in small spaces, which made security more of an issue. Additionally, the Great Exhibition had brought citizens from across the world, foreigners to London, and to the untrusting eyes of its citizens. Plus, a rising middle class valued their possessions and property immensely and wanted to guard it. All of this rendered Alfred Hobbs and his lock-picking skills both a point of fear and admiration. Bonus Fact 3 Chubbs's locks, despite its humiliation, continued as Britain's industry standard. In fact, Chubbs still operates today, making safes that are trusted the world over. Alfred Hobbs stayed in London for nine years and began his own lock manufacturing company, Hobbs Heart Company. He eventually returned to the US in 1860, but the company stayed in London on 76 Cheapside Avenue, bearing its famous name. It remained there for another 90-plus years, until 1954, when it was bought by the Chubbs Company. Bonus Fact 4 Hobbs, upon returning to the United States, didn't go back into locks. He worked at the Howe Sewing Machine Company, helping Elias Howe engineer and design the lock-stitch sewing machine. Eventually, he joined the Remington Arms Company at the request of the company's founder, Marcellus Hartley, who was looking for a mechanical genius. Hobbs proved to be just that, filing a dozen patents for the company in firearm ammunition manufacturing. 